We're continuing on in our James series, and Ryan's going to come out and deliver an incredible message. But right now, would you join me in standing as I read today's passage? This is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The word of God for the gathered people of God. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you sit there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? Amen. Woo! Well, welcome to the deep end with James. (laughs) Oh my gosh. If you're just visiting our church, you're like, wow, these guys, they're serious. We are. We're serious about God's word, because in God's word, we find the light and the truth of life, and God has so much wisdom to pour into us today, all right? This, is one, this topic of favoritism is so important for us to grasp at this time in our country's cultural moment that I'm going to really make sure that we dive in and understand the biblical teaching of this concern about favoritism, not just how James talks about it, but how what James is talking about is rooted in a deep biblical history and tradition of addressing this area that is a major potential threat to our capacity to live and manifest God's mercy. All right, let me open up with a story from my own life. When I was in junior high, um, because when I think of favoritism, I think junior high. You with me? I don't know. Junior high is just crazy times. And if you're there in junior high, you're going to make it. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. You're going to make it out the other side. Junior high, though, first day of seventh grade, I was new to the neighborhood, relatively speaking, and asked the only friend that I had to save me a spot at the lunch table, right? Because lunch without friends is just social death. So I give him my lunch bag. I go to the line to get some milk, and I come back and my spot's taken, and my friend is like, oh, sorry, man, and throws, throws me in my lunch bag. And everyone just kind of laughs, and I notice, yeah, some of the popular kids at this school had grabbed the table and no spot for me. So I was exiled to go eat lunch by myself by the math class, all right? So that's when you know things are low, when you're hanging out at math by yourself. No <laughs> friends to math teachers. Now, have you ever experienced a moment where you felt excluded marginalized, or even just like misunderstood, where people, let me assume the worst of you, or just 
where you get that feeling of feeling left out. Come on now, yeah? Come on now. All right, that's what James is talking about, right? So James catches wind of this trend in the Christian churches of saving a place at the lunch table for all the rich while kicking the poor to math class. And so he's like, man, I got to talk to you guys about this. Now, mind you, when James writes about something here, he's, he's doing it because it's not just one church or one person. He's doing, writing this because this letter is being circulated to churches all throughout the Roman Empire. And so he sees that there's a need across many churches to address this issue. And so James begins in verse 1 by saying, My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, for the next 13 verses, he's going to make an argument. He's going to build to verse 13, where he says one of the most stunning verses in Scripture. Verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, that is such a profound idea. And it should remind us of when Jesus said, um, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. You remember that when he said that? So this is deeply Jesus, this is deeply biblical, and it is our memory verse for today. So um, we've had some long ones, but this is a nice, easy one. I think you could even memorize it before you leave service today, right? There it is. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's, there it is. Now, what does this say to us today about favoritism? Well, first, fundamentally and irreducibly, Christians are men and women who have been transformed by the mercy of God. A Christian is someone who has been made aware of their need for mercy, unearned, undeserved favor and kindness, and has been transformed by that mercy. Okay, now listen. The early church was so stuck on this idea of mercy that the idea is that you cannot, that, that being saved by God's mercy it means not just that you've experienced mercy for yourself, but the early church understood that our purpose now is to carry God's mercy to the world around us. You and I are God's living sign of God's mercy to the world. You are like the lollipop. You're the, you're the little thing that gives people a taste of the goodness of God's mercy. Okay, now that's really important for us as Christians to understand, but James is what he's saying right here is that one of the biggest threats to the mercy, the centrality of God's mercy in our life and in this church is favoritism. And so he's got to get to this issue and help us understand it. The early church maintained a radical standard of mercy and sacrificial love because they were willing to be clear about what favoritism is in their lives and in their culture, and they were willing to be honest and face it. So that's what we're going to do today. All right. Here's the thrust of the message, right? We need to be vigilant about favoritism. We need to be able to be clear about what it is. And number two, along with James, we need to be honest about the ways it just shows up in our life and the way that it works in our broader culture so that we're not deceived and tempted by it. So vigilance. Let's talk about clarity and what it favoritism is and how he defines it. We're going to look at verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show us 
special attention to the rich man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, ah, you, know, you stand back there, right? Or sit on the floor by my feet. Verse 4, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Wow, okay, so how would you define favoritism by this scripture? What is favoritism? Turn to a friend in his 20 seconds. What's one thing you would say to describe favoritism based on this verse? Go ahead and share, just real quick, a couple seconds. How would you describe it? Okay, so what he does is he uses this hypothetical illustration, probably a scenario that he was hearing about, and he uses it to illustrate what it looks like to define it for their context. So he takes it from the abstract and he gets specific to help define it. That's where we get into trouble. Whenever we try to get specific and apply these kinds of ideas, that's where the rubber meets the road. Let's define favoritism. It means, based on this definition, to pay special attention to those who can benefit us. Now get this, at the expense of giving attention to those who cannot repay us. Do you see that in the passage? Okay. Now I want to kind of build on this. The key phrase in this definition is at the expense. What James is not concerned with is that you show kindness to a rich guy. He's like, dude, Show kindness to the rich and to the poor. The problem is, is when it becomes a zero-sum game, when it's at the expense, when you value one person by, by devaluing another person. Are you with me? It's the whole, I'm going to blow out your candle so that their candle shines a little brighter. Are you with me? That's the problem. It's the devaluing of people in order to increase the value of others. And here you can see that this early church was hoping to get benefit from having the rich man in their community for the sake of his resources. Now you can see here in this moment, you can see that not only dishonors the rich, but it also kind of messes with the rich guy. It kind of messes with their own sense of value to the community. Is God in charge of providing for the community or is it all up to me, the rich guy? Now listen, um, which is why in verse 6 he says, but you have dishonored the poor, because in the end, the bend of human history is to value people that give us some benefit that we can't get from others. Sometimes it's financial benefit, sometimes it's social, emotional, right? And so the scriptures have always been concerned about this. Look at this. Um, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the great prophet Samuel stumbled into favoritism. Yeah, this great prophet, Samuel, who spoke the words of God, had to get corrected by God. Look at this. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see it right there? Because Samuel was trying to discern who's going to be the next king, and he sees the oldest of David's family, this big, tall, good-looking guy walk in, and he's like, that must be the next king. And David's like, come on, man. And he makes him hold out to the seventh sibling, David, the youngest of the family, out in the fields with the sheep. Do you see how we can just get deceived 
by outward appearance and not see the true value of people. Now, Jesus takes this concern up again in John 7, 24, when he says, don't judge by outward appearances. He's not saying ignore outward appearance. I mean, we want to recognize outward appearance. If you didn't, you wouldn't recognize your own spouse, right? The brain is hardwired to recognize outward appearance. It's the assumptions, the judgments, and the prejudices that we get tempted into. That's what James is concerned with. Now listen, the Old Testament talks about this from Deuteronomy all the way through the prophets. In fact, this is one of those areas of sin that causes God to send the Israelites into exile. It's idolatry, and it was the idolatry that led to favoritism and the way they treated each other. So in the Old Testament, the temptation to value people by appearance is categorized. So the Bible wants us to be aware of where are we more likely to devalue people based on appearance. So it categorizes them for us. Okay, so for example, be careful with the poor. I want to, we have some images I want to put up. The Bible is clear always, again and again, to not devalue people because they're poor, because the way they look, right? Number two, the other category is orphans. Because what does an orphan have how can an orphan benefit you in any way financially? Or the widows, or the foreigners, representing this larger category of the disadvantaged. Now, the New Testament picks this up and takes it even. Check out what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, because what Jesus did on the cross was to take the mercy of God and put it on its full display for all the glory that it is. Listen to Paul. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ. Come on now. Now what is Paul saying here that James is agreeing with? He's not saying, oh, let's just forget the distinctions between a man and a woman. He's not saying that. He's saying it's the value we put on people because of those distinctions. You with me? He's not saying, forget it, there's no male or female, there's no Jew or Gentile, let's all pretend we're the same. We are not the same. He's not saying ignore the differences, because in fact, thank God we're different. Can you imagine if we were all just the same? I remember when I was in sixth grade, I had this moment of awareness of pride. I was in sixth grade and the class was out of control. And I just remember thinking, I just wish everybody was more like me, you know, because then our class would be better behaved. Have you ever had a moment when you just wished your spouse was more like you? Come on now. Come on now. Have you ever been there? You know, if, if, if the world was more like me, we would all be a lot cooler, better looking, right? <laughs> a lot smarter. And we'd just be all off a lot better. Okay, that's the issue that we're looking at here, is that we, our temptation is to devalue others because of those differences. And that's what James is kind of hitting on right here. Now, so this issue extends the realm of favoritism to race, gender, and class. Do you see that? Race, Jew, Gentile. Gender, male, female. Class, master, slave. Are you with me? So what is he doing here? He's saying that favoritism is a tendency for us to devalue others because they are female or because they are poor or because they don't have the color of our skin. Now, this is amazing, right? 
the way the early church protected the integrity of God's mercy in their community was by being clear about what favoritism is so that they could be aware of the ways it would want to tempt and deceive them into it. Because we all struggle with it. Why? Well, that's our next point here. James helps us understand that favoritism in all its forms, racism, chauvinism, classism, all that, hooliganism, we'll talk about hooliganism later, um, is spiritual in nature. Look at this. Verse 9, right here. But if you show favoritism, you sin. Now, what does he mean when he says it's sin? Fundamentally, what he's saying is, get this, is that at the core, favoritism is not a political problem, it's not a psychological problem, and it's not fundamentally an emotional or racial problem. At the core, if you go to its deepest point of origin, it is a spiritual disease that manifests in racial inequality, political division. Are you with me? You get that? The reason why that's important it's because when we want to address how do we resolve this issue, what the scriptures are saying is you've got to get to the spiritual level if you really want to uproot it. And the Bible's answer, the antidote to favoritism, is God's radical mercy experienced in our life. That God has not excluded you because of the sin you did last night. He has not excluded you because of the, the, the degree of difference between you and him, but he has welcomed you in. That's mercy. Now, um, so let me, let me just summarize, right? Ready? To be clear, to be in clarity, to favoritism is devaluing of some in order to value others, and it is sin. It is spiritual in nature. Okay? There we go. So what does that mean for us personally and practically? Okay, this is where James gets really uncomfortable. So brace yourself. Here we go. James is like a coach, and you thought you could only run one mile. He's the coach. He doesn't say, come on now. You got it in you. We're going to go two. I remember when I was in high school, my buddy's dad was the football coach, and he wanted to get the skinny little soccer player into the weight room. So he got me on the bench, and now I'm benching, and I could push this weight up. No big deal, right? I don't remember what it was. It was like two little, bar, two little slabs on there. And then comes the point where he throws on the heavier weight, and I couldn't push it. I could not lift it. And I go, I can't do it. He's like, don't worry. That's what spotting's for. And he comes with two fingers, and he just helps me lift it. And he goes, that's how you build strength. James is like that coach. And he wants to take this topic of, of favoritism a little further to build our strength. Here we go. At first, he wants us to be clear about what it is. He wants us to learn to be honest about its presence in our life and in our culture so that we can be vigilant and not be deceived and tempted. Here we go. Number one, he's, he makes the point we are all tempted to discriminate. And number two, there are deep patterns of discrimination in our culture. Now, so you don't think I'm making this up and I'm up here with some kind of crazy political agenda. Listen to James right here, verse 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay, so what does this mean for us? Number one, it means, first, it means we all struggle to dis with discrimination. We all struggle with favoritism. We all struggle to value people by appearance people who we feel more comfortable with, people who look more like us, people who share more things in common with us, we feel more safe, comfortable, 
And get this, we tend to trust and value those people a little bit more. Let me explain. Um, there was a study done with children at a school. These are kids like kindergarten, first, second grade. And they did this test where they dressed up half the class in red shirts, half the class in blue shirts. And for three weeks they're wearing these shirts. The teacher was instructed to make no you know, teaching or don't explain in any way the purpose of the shirts and don't favor any group more than the other. Just let them wear the shirts. Okay, so for three weeks they wore these shirts. Then afterwards they interviewed the, the kids and asked them, who would you be more likely, who would be more likely to be smart and get the right answer on a hard question on a test? The red person, blue person, or the red-shirted person or the blue-shirted person? Who would you be more likely, or who would be more likely to be nice to you? The red-shirted person or the blue-shirted person? And as you can guess, overwhelmingly, the kids voted for the kids who were wearing the same shirt as them. Now, this was mind-blowing, right? This is just like t-shirts, but it's actually a problem, and it's not just with kids. It even stays with us into adulthood. Look at this, hooliganism. Ever heard of hooliganism? I know you think racism is a real issue, but hooliganism is even worse. This is where people like find their identity in their sports team to such a level that they become bullies and violent towards people of other teams. I mean, that's some serious fanhood. I mean, look at this. So in Europe, in soccer, hooliganism is a way of describing the bullying, the violence, and the rioting that comes because people with the red shirts are looking at the people with the blue shirts, right? I'm a Liverpool fan, red. Manchester City, my son's favorite team, blue. And they don't just tease or playfully you know, jab at them. They actually get violent and attack them and start riots. Isn't that crazy? So what does this say to us? What, what the Bible has always said is that we all struggle with valuing people who are more like us. And the reason why that's so actually freeing is that if you've ever found yourself doing that, you don't have to be like, oh, I'm just the worst person in the world. We're all in this together. Because the truth is, we've all got sin. And I just love how the Bible levels the playing field. There's not some of us that are just worse than others. The fact is, we all struggle with doing this. And what the Bible is showing us, what James is showing us, is that it's our ability to be honest and aware of the ways that we are tempted to favor some versus others and the way that our culture does that. Now, that's harder to do. And I got to bring that up right now because sometimes as a pastor... I got to tell you, I was nervous to bring this up today because to bring up these topics is tempting for some of us to assume my political agenda. In the past, in trying to bring up some of these forms of favoritism, like racism, as a pastor, I've been accused of having a political agenda. The assumption that I must be coming from the conservative or coming from the liberal progressive side. And I think that's what James, why it's so important to look at what James is doing. He is calling this out. He's saying, hey guys, you guys are struggling with this. And it's our ability to be honest, not just with ourselves personally, but in our culture, so that we, being aware of it, can guard ourselves from it. Because according to the Bible, all of us 
are tempted and are, it's possible for any of us to be deceived into valuing one person because of appearance than another person. I'll give you an example of my own life where I found this to be true. Um, I remember I, was, I, was, I had gone to Guatemala, was doing evangelism in this prison, and I got really excited about sharing the gospel with people that I didn't know. And so I st- when I came back, I brought it with me to the beaches and started going and talking to people about Jesus on the beach. One time I was praying before I went out, and I, this is just me by myself, and God just was showing me how there were people I was avoiding. As I was walking around, I noticed there, I would talk to some people, hey, hey you want to, you know, can, I, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm talking to people about Jesus, and I would just skip over groups of people. And God started to show me the pattern of those people I was skipping. They were, you know, I was at La Jolla, in some cases PB, and so I was, there were these groups of people in the parking lot, kind of the bigger, been, you know, putting some serious time into the weight room, tatted up, you know, shaved heads, and I was like, oh, and I was avoiding those people because they made me nervous, and I was like, oh, they don't want to hear what I have to say. Uh, they're just going to blow me off. And God just started to convict me because I was uncomfortable. I was assuming that God wasn't at work in those people, and I wasn't giving them a chance to respond to the gospel. So I just prayed, confessed, all right, God, I've been, you know, I've been leaving some people out on purpose. I've been, I was able to face that favoritism. I was favoring people that I felt more comfortable with. I prayed, and I walked up to this group of guys. And they were sitting in the back of a truck, this one guy, big dude. He was wearing those long sleeve shirts, choppers written on the sleeve. Man, he was making me tats up here. I was like, oh, okay, here I go, God. Just watch out for me, Lord. And no offense if you got the choppers. I'm not trying to make judgment on you. This is about my judgments. And I walk up, and I say, hey, guys. I'm walking around talking to people about Jesus, and I was just praying. I felt like I needed to come up to you guys and just talk to you. And the big guy leans and looks at me and goes, what do you got to say? I'm like, oh, he wants to hear what I had to say. I was completely caught off guard, and that's to my own embarrassment. And so I just started sharing my testimony, and I started sharing the gospel with them. And he just started listening. And other guys were like, pretty soon I got the feeling the other guys were more afraid of me than I was of them. They were just like, but he was like, come on, tell me more. Why that? What do you think about that? Why is that? And this guy was way more open and curious than I realized. But you can see right here how that moment might've been lost because of my, the temptation to make assumptions on outward appearance. What the scriptures are, what James has shown us right here by addressing is to be honest means we resist being easily offended when we're called out. James has got to call them out. You are favoring some over others. And the early church practiced this when there was a report that they were neglecting the non Jewish widows. They didn't blow it off and go, oh, you're being overreactive. Ah, oh, you're being. You know, you're being, um, uh, you're exaggerating things. They took it seriously. And because of that, it says in Acts that the gospel continued to spread because they were willing to be honest and not offended. We all struggle with showing favoritism. We all find ourselves tempted to devalue people based on how they appear to us. 
And that might be the color of their shirt, the color of their skin, or the type of clothes they wear. And the Bible is saying, don't be afraid of it. Because God's mercy for you and for the world is bigger. Isn't that good news? That everyone in this room is coming from a place where we all need to be able to face those areas where we're tempted and overcome it. It's not just for some and not for others. Everybody struggles with it. There we go. Lastly, um, I want to invite the band to come on out. And as the band comes out, um, Romans 15.7 says this. Look at Romans 15.7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Favoritism is what keeps us from welcoming others the way that Christ would welcome. I want to share with you an example from the early church. In, writing, in describing what, what Christians looked like in the first century, one writer described them this way. Listen to this. Christians were being slandered as being cannibalistic because Jesus said, you have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. Yeah, that was a little confusing. <laughs> They called everybody brother and sister and treated everybody that way. So they thought, oh my gosh, these guys are like, uh, they, they thought Christians were practicing incest. So there were these rumors about Christians. But listen to this first century description of what Christians were really like. They love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. They deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not. Listen to this. Without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over them as a brother and sister. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. Come on now. God's mercy triumphs over every judgment of sin in our lives. His mercy triumphs over every judgment that has been rendered against you. And get this, his mercy triumphs over every false judgment you have made toward others. And in that way, by extending his arms on the cross to welcome everybody, he was crucified to put to death the power of our differences to separate us to, and to actually be the very thing that highlights the beauty of who God is. What does it look like for us this week to welcome others the way Christ has welcomed us? What would that mean for you this week? I want to encourage you as we go into this song, reflect. How does God want to encourage you in your workplace, at school, in your neighborhood, to welcome a stranger, to welcome somebody you don't know so that someone who's been an outsider to you in your life becomes an insider. To take a stand against the temptation to settle for people we already know, people we feel comfortable with, people who are just like us so that the mercy of God can be displayed through us. All right, so this week, here's your homework assignment. Number one, Memorize that long memory verse. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Number two, I want to challenge you to consider a personal goal 
for the remainder of this year? What if every Sunday you went out of your way to welcome and extend your hand and reach out and greet some one person that you don't know? It could be somebody, end up being somebody that's been coming to our church for 20 years and you're the one that's only been here for two months. But in doing that, you're standing against that inertia that we all feel to come here and just huddle up with a few people we know and feel comfortable with and leave in that, with that same group. But what if as we come here, you reaching out to somebody you don't know is going to be the way that God helps that person feel like, wow, this church is a place for me. If you're in high school or junior high, what if like you reach out to someone on your team, you reach out to someone in your class, someone you don't know, someone that maybe is not like you, totally different than you, someone that you don't think you have anything in common with. This today, this morning, someone was sharing with me how their child in high school sits alone every lunch and is struggling to make friends and is feeling lonely and struggling. It takes some energy to overcome that emotional threshold, right? To reach out to somebody we don't know, to cross that bridge, to cross that gap. But when we do, the mercy of God breaks through. The mercy of God breaks through. Number two, help an outsider feel like an insider at church. I was an outsider once, and I never would have come to church if a friend didn't invite me. I'm going to tell you right now, never would I have traded a Friday night to go to a Bible study <laughs> if a friend didn't invite me. Harvest party's coming up. What if you just, okay, I just want to invite one family to bring their kids and have fun at the harvest party. What if you're in high school or junior high, invite your friends to come and get a ton of free candy? Why not? I mean, seriously, come on. Are you too old for candy? I doubt it. I got 70-year-olds grabbing out of my lollipop bag, so come on now. Invite one friend or one neighbor or one family to the harvest party and help someone on the outside of the church feel like an insider. God bless you guys. Have a great week.